0: Father, we thank you for this chance to come together and to study your word and to see what you would have us understand and how you would reveal yourself to us through this study and through the Old Testament in general, but also specifically First and 2 Kings, the significant time in the interaction between you and the Israelites. Lord, help us understand the context but also understand that there is so much we can learn about you and about how you interact with us humans through this study. Lord, we seek to glorify you in all we say and all we do. And as we we go through this, Lord, give us the words, give us the direction, give us the discernment, both now and in our discussion groups. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, just a little uh, little overview on how this class works. I know many of you have been through many of these classes, but there might be some people that are new here. Uh, normally, and tonight's not a normal night because it's kind of an organizational night, but uh, I usually talk for about 45 minutes, and then we go into small groups or discussion groups or not small groups. Eric right now would be going, Pastor Eric would go, Tom, for the 400th time, those aren't small groups. That's what we're doing this weekend when we do small group formation do discussion groups. Discussion groups are are broken up by gender. There are male discussion groups and female discussion groups, and we're going to do that in the middle of this class. We're going to form those just by the ever-scientific way of counting off, as you many know that have been through all this. So that's the discussion group. That'll be the the second part of the evening. We come back for usually five minutes tonight. We're going to come back a little bit more just as a kind of a prep for next week. So that's how the class uh, works. This class is on, my part of this class is online each week. So if you miss a week, no worry about, hey, I'm out of sequence or I didn't follow the study. You can listen to it online through our uh, website or podcast. There's a number of ways to which you can get it. If you go to the website, you can go to media or there'll be an icon for this study on the website. So any questions on that? Okay. Um, We are, I think it's fairly obvious, but we are in the Old Testament. And for a lot of Christians, when you're in the Old Testament, you kind of, ooh, that's that weird whole thing of 77% of the Bible, but I don't go there a lot because I don't understand it. And I understand that. You know, when I went to seminary, a lot of our seminary professors would call us New Testament Christians meaning you're ignorant of the Old Testament, you seminarians. All you ever want to study is the, the New Testament, you're ignorant of the Old Testament. And there is some truth to that. I mean, everybody lines up. You know, the, the, the number of New Testament majors was huge, and then the Old Testament majors were like five people in a corner by themselves. So I understand how we're naturally drawn to the New Testament, but it is not a stretch to say you cannot understand the New Testament unless you know the Old Testament. There is no way. The Bible is one book. A long time ago, the mistake was made by calling the individual sections of the Bible books. They're not books, they're chapters. The idea to us is when we see a book, we think it stands alone. We think, oh, I can read that book by itself. And that's no way true. To understand the Bible, you need to understand the totality of the Bible. It is one story. It starts and it ends, and it has a whole bunch of things and plots and drama goes up and down throughout the Bible. You would never pick up a novel and read chapters 11, 12, and 13 and put it down and walk away. First, you wouldn't even know what's happening in 11, 12, 13 because you don't know what's happening in the plot. And then you might be starting to get into the plot And then you just what? Put it down and walk away without finding out how it ends? No, we would never do that. So, we're going to take a chunk of this story, this story in this book, we're going to take almost 400 years of it. But to understand that 400 years, we have to understand what's happened leading up to this. If you open up 1 Kings and start reading it, there's an assumption by the author that you know everything that's happened prior to that. The author doesn't define who these people are. I mean, instantly, David's dying, and there's a fight over who's going to succeed him, and there's all this stuff going on, and nowhere is there a description of who these people are. And you can be very confused, and most people are. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to do kind of a a run-up to this period of time that we're going to be studying and we're going to run up with an understanding and then next week we're going to jump into 1 Kings reminding ourselves next week of what we learned this week and about what leads before it. The other thing we need to kind of address, or two things really, first is that what do we mean by history? Okay? We in the modern era think that, that historians... Write history, and when they write history, they write it in a in, in an unbiased way, where they're giving everything as just facts, and and there's no influence by the human author at all, and it's all just this is the way it happened. No history has ever 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 been written by a human being that is devoid of you know influences or points of view or how they review history. Now, the Bible never tries to be a a historic account of something without a point. I don't care what narrative it is, if it's narrative in the Old Testament, or if it's the Gospels or Acts, there's a point, okay? So this is history, but it's history being told to make a point. And the point is to tell us who God is and how God interacts with humans. Now that's going to be very clear in the weeks to come because what we're going to see is we're going to see, well, this is what's happened. This is how you would see it from a human standpoint if you were there. But we're going to be told what is really happening because God is causing it to happen. A classic example is we're going to get to where the kingdom of of Israel is going to be split in two after Solomon. That's why it's not, you know, first and second king. It's first and second kings. In fact, we're going to have 41 kings through this study. It gets split in two. Well, the the human reason why it's split in two is Solomon taxed the living daylights out of his people, except his own people, the tribe of Judah, doesn't get taxed. So there are 12 tax districts on the northern tribes that he's taxing heavily, and when he passes away and his successor comes, they all go to the successor and go, Are you gonna tax this like your dad did? And Judah is not gonna pay any tax? And he says, Yes, so they rebel, and that's when the northern and southern king is split. That's if we lived in that day, that's how we'd understand it. That's how they understood it. If you walked up to a a, a Reubenite and you said, Well, why did you guys rebel? And and succeed from the southern kingdom. And they say, are you kidding me? I'm not going to pay those taxes anymore. It's nuts. But what we find out, we find that out when we read, but what we also find out is that this is God's punishment for what Solomon did and the sins of Solomon, and we're going to cover that, and it's God's punishment. And then not only that, he punishes the northern kingdom for all of its existence. Now, if you'd ask that northern kingdom, are you being punished? A lot of times they say, what do you mean punished? I mean, crops are good. Everything's fine. None of their kings are good. All 20 of their kings are bad. And they're the first one to get wiped off the face of the earth. And I mean literally wiped off the face of the earth. And we'll cover that in weeks ahead. So it's this idea of history and history. Okay? It's interesting. Um, Well, maybe it's interesting. What would you say, Lee? Am I going to control it? Can you advance it? (laughs) Thank you, Lee. I appreciate that. Uh, A biblical scholar says it this way in talking about the, the whole concept of the sovereignty of God and how God works in history. While it is one thing to say that Yahweh, and that is the correct spelling of Yahweh, by the way, in a Hebrew, that is the word somehow that came up today i had that up there and said hey you left out some vowels i go no the yahweh with the a's is just a way so we can pronounce it this is actually the hebrew and it's not a word it's a symbol they do not say nor read nor speak god's name the name god okay so that's the symbol they use now, the Christians come along and go, well, we're going to say this thing, and so they threw in a couple of vowels and it became Yahweh. So we can go into that in more detail, but that is the symbol in Hebrew for God, okay? Say that Yahweh's plans are worked out in the realm of history. It's one thing to say that, that God's plans are worked out. It is another to say that he works in sovereign power over history, okay? See, it's easy to say somehow that just worked out the way God wanted it, but to think God is sovereign over history is how we look at it. But, if you can give me the other half of the quote, oh, you did, he does that, he does that by shaping that history to his will while all the time allowing Israel, in this case, to think and respond and act as they will. See, we take God's sovereignty and we take man's free will and we try to, well, they mutually exclusive. How does that work? How do those two circles overlap? How does this all come about? And they are not opposed. Man's free will is wholly within the sovereignty of God. Okay? So God doesn't have to make someone do something they wouldn't do to bring about his will. He just lets them go where they're going and has that work into his plan. Now, it's hard for us to get that. But it's critical in a study like this because we're going to see people doing all kinds of things and we know they're not doing it because of God because, quite frankly, they don't have any time for God. Yet it's all in God's plan. One of the most well-known is is Judas when he betrays Jesus. He isn't sitting there going, well, I'm doing what God would have me do because I'm all part of God's plan. No, he's doing what he would do because of who he is, but is all in God's plan under God's sovereignty. Okay, I know it's a concept that's a little, but so, all right. Now we're go- okay. This is not. Oh, did that? Did I do that? Oh, you did it. <laughs> well, I felt good for a nanosecond. We're gonna go to the sheet, and I know it's a little hard to see, but um- so I'm gonna have you look at the sheet in front of you, but I got it up here anyway. This is literally the Old Testament right here in outline form. It starts with creation. God created everything that is. And we have the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, universal history, history of all man. That's where uh, evil comes into the world and we see the results of evil. And basically, there, are, um, there is great conflict in the world. And we fast forward to chapter 12 in Genesis where God comes to Abraham and says, through you, I am going to bring about essentially my plan to bless all the earth. That blessing is ultimately through Jesus Christ. But that's where we start this process. Then we have the period of the patriarchs, which is essentially Genesis. And and that's how the people of Israel The Israelites, the descendants of Jacob, who is renamed Israel, so that's where the name Israelites come from, they exist, but they are not a nation. They're in Egypt, they're slaves, they're serving the Pharaoh, the people of Egypt, but they have not been really made the people of God, though he has put his stamp on them through Jacob. And when we come to the Exodus, and the Exodus is really the start of the Israelites or the nation of Israel, God creates that nation, as he will say or has said, by bringing them out of slavery and and creating a nation on that time or on that day I made you a nation. And so they, they they come out of that, takes them to the promised land, that promise he had given to Abraham to occupy that Canaanite area, which... Uh, Is called the Promised Land. They get to Kadesh Barnea in the southern area. He says, here it is. Go for it. Your people have been waiting 400 years for this. 400 years of slavery and what do they do? Yeah. Don't have faith. Refuse to go in. So that generation, everyone 20 and over, spends 40 years in the desert as a punishment, but also being sustained by God. So he sustains them through the 40 years, provides for their needs, but he is also punishing them by not letting them go into the promised land. They, they die over that time and when the last one dies, then they're able, their descendants can go into the promised land. So what we have is through the you know, Exodus and, and uh, Leviticus numbers, all the way up to Deuteronomy, we have that 40 years of wandering. Then Deuteronomy comes, and Deuteronomy, we're sitting on the eastern side of, and we're going to have a map next week to look at all this, the eastern side of the promised land, Jericho essentially, on the, in the river, in the Transjordan River. And they're, they're saying going in. You know, now, now they're going to be able to go in. And what Deuteronomy is, is Moses retelling to remind this generation of what's happened, and of the law, so when they go in, they don't what? Make the mistakes of their ancestors, their parents, their aunts, their uncles. Now, there are many people that see Deuteronomy through 2 Kings as one book, okay? Certainly, Kings talks a lot about Deuteronomy, not by name, but references it, quotes it, so we're going to see that throughout, and the Deuteronomic uh, law, law of Moses, is going to be a, a huge part of that, and the instructions in Deuteronomy about worship are going to be central to that, and Deuteronomic theology. Deuteronomic theology is: you do good, you get good; you do bad, you get bad, and that is going to be the theology of First and Second Kings, as it is First and Second Samuel, and all that. Because over and over, that king did bad in the eyes of God. He did not keep the law, and thus, you know, da-da-da-da. We're going to hear that a few times, to say the least. So, Deuteronomy, the millions of Israelites are there on the plains. Moses is giving his last speech, because he doesn't get to go into the promised land with them because of his sin. Gives them the speech, that's all Deuteronomy. Then, in they go. Joshua talks about the conquest. Joshua is a successor to Moses. We go through that. The conquest, we go through the judges. And all this time, we're going to just, no, not not me at all. Go too forward. We're going to see the succession. It starts off with Moses. Remember, God uses Moses to make the nation of Israel. He uses Moses to bring them in the Exodus, to bring them out of Egypt. He's succeeded by Joshua. Joshua's an awful lot like Moses, okay? And he brings him in to take over the land, the conquest, right? To inhabit the promised land, to fulfill the promise of over 400 years, this promise that was given to Abraham, okay? And then we get into Judges, okay? Judges is a little weird for us. We've been arguing for a lot of years about Are the judges in sequence? Are the judges over all of Israel? Are these regional judges? Are these judges that are representative of the totality? We certainly don't have all the judges in the book of Judges. So most people come to that this seems like judges that are used by God in different parts of Israel at different times using that that text to teach us about the judges. Now, the judges go all the way through Samuel. Samuel Samuel's a prophet and a judge. Most of the judges were also prophets, meaning that God's word would come from them, okay? So we get all the way to Samuel, so we're following all this, these judges into Samuel. And we get to Samuel, and and, um, Samuel's two sons aren't so hot. They aren't really followers of God very much. And so the people demand a king. And they demand a king in a very direct way. In fact, I'm going to read. I'm in in 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8. And we've just heard about Samuel's getting old and his son's are to become judges. He's made his sons judges over Israel, but they aren't really walking with the Lord. So this is what happens in 1 Samuel 8, 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ram and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed, excuse me, to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. You see, what God had done is used prophets and and judges to instruct the people. The people did not have the authority, the prophets and judges did not have the authority over the people. But God would speak to the people through that. So God was the people's king. And he had been that. Since the day he created their nation. And chose them. But that wasn't good enough. They wanted a human king. Why? Because they wanted somebody to go out. And unite them and fight their battles. You see they didn't trust God. I need a human. I need something I can touch. And I know that they're going to take a sword. So they rejected God. And demanded a king. Now. There's consequences to that. So starting in verse 10, Samuel is going to tell them the consequences of having a king. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to the chariots and to be his horsemen and run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands of commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the, the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfum, perfum, perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards, and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants, and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and he, you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the, God, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice. Make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. That sin will be with them the rest of their existence. They will be plagued by this sin of rejecting God and wanting a human king. That is going to be over all of our study in First and 2 Kings. When we wonder why is all this going so bad for them, we go back to this passage and remind ourselves of what God warned them of if they pursued this. But they didn't care because they knew better than God. So then we, we have our first king, which is Saul. And Saul starts off pretty good, but then it starts to go really bad. And to the point where God rejects him, where God even torments him, and Saul refused to trust God to depend on God and to be the voice of God to the people so Saul is eventually out of the picture and David is the now David is anointed king why still Saul still there and much of for Samuel is this David being anointed king Saul still being king and the interaction of all that. And then we come to David. The man after God's own heart. The king that every other king is judged against. And we're going to see that in Kings. We're going to see it over and over. David is the standard of what it means. But does that mean David is perfect? No. And in the first chapter of 1 Kings we're going to see the results of that imperfection. You see, David is going along as kings are, and even kings that are totally devoted to God, when they do something they're not supposed to do, when they put themselves in a position they shouldn't be, bad things happen, and that's what David does. He's someplace he shouldn't be, he sees Bathsheba, the wife of someone else, the wife of a a fighter of his, a commander of his, and he decides to do what he shouldn't do and basically goes and um, is with her. She becomes pregnant. He panics, knows he's impregnated one of his commanders, and the commander is fighting a battle, a war somewhere else how do I make this not look bad? So what does he do? He calls the commander back, tries to get the commander to spend the night with his wife, but the commander refuses because his men are in the field and he's not going to do that. David's now in a real bind, so basically he has him killed. And he has him killed, if you know the story, not directly, but he makes it look like a casualty of the battle and he co-ops His commander of the armies in that. So not only does he sin, he causes another person, his senior most general, to also sin. He then takes Bathsheba as his wife. The child she's carrying dies. And we think at that moment in in Samuel that this is all bad. See, this is what happens. The child died. You did what you weren't supposed to do. And yet we find out that Bathsheba has another child. In fact, she has a few more children. Another the other child she has is called Solomon. And when we open up this, this study in 1 Kings, the first thing that's happening is David is dying, and Bathsheba is fighting to get Solomon on the throne. So that's history. Now, for David, that incident with Bathsheba is a hinge point in his, his reign. Because after that, things don't go so well. One of his sons, Amnon, rapes one of his daughters, Tamar. We don't know if they're, they're half because we don't have the mother of Tamar. Absalom, the, another son, kills his half-brother to avenge his sister. That's not good. And then Absalom is uh, rebuked for that. And he rebels against King David and tries to take the throne away from him. And so Absalom is killed in his rebellion. So we we see these. This, dissent, or this ascension of David and this, the great things that is happening and we see this hinge point and things start to, to have be problems. It isn't that it all falls apart because it doesn't. But he starts to have incidences that, that aren't the best. Though the difference about David is when David is called on his sin, he repents. And David is always seeking God. He makes mistakes, but he always is seeking God. When he makes a mistake, he repents and turns back to God. But there are consequences. And one of those consequences are at the very end of of 2 Samuel, right before our study starts in 1 Kings. And what he does at the end of 2 Samuel is he takes a census. And, And he wasn't supposed to take the census, It was a sin against God to count his armies. There's two things that happen in a census. One, it has to do with taxation. One of it has to do with finding out how strong you are. His might does not come from his men. His might comes from God. So he takes the sentence, and God calls him on it. And and God says, I'm going to punish you, and you have a choice of three punishments. And God says, I'm not going to, he says, David choose. He says, I'm not going to choose. You do what's right. So God kills 70,000 of David's citizens. And we go, wait a minute. David sinned. Why is someone else paying the price of his sin? Isn't that almost how it always goes? We mess up. We usually aren't the only one that's affected. And this is going to be a theme throughout First and Second Kings. As the king goes, so go the people. We aren't going to hear about, well, the king sinned and bad things happened to him, but, but there were, you know, 100,000 people over here following the Lord and it was all good. No, as the king goes, so go the people. And, and right at the end of Second Samuel, right before we go to First Kings, we see a classic example of that. 70,000 people are killed because of David's sin. Because that's the way it works when you have a king. We don't see that when there's a judge. But when there's a king, there is. Because of the king, you've put a human between you and God if you're the nation of Israel. And what that human does will directly affect your life. So we go through David and then, and then we come to this point where David's dying and that's where we're going to step in. Now, can you go to the next one? I know, I keep reaching there. It's the fallacy. You know how we think we have control? Here's a great object lesson. Tom keeps thinking that he can do something with that PowerPoint, with his thing. He can't, but he keeps going back to it. It's a lesson we do every day. We somehow think we can positively control our lives outside of God, and yet we can't. So, covenants. We need to have a kind of working knowledge. We're going to go over this several times throughout the study, but there's three main covenants for the Israelites, and they very much shape this period of time. Is 400 years. The first one is the Abrahamic covenant. We often refer to that. that. That's part covenant, part promise. What's the difference between a promise and a covenant? Anybody remember when we've talked about it in the past? A promise. Brad, I'm going to do great things for you. I'm going to bless you. And there it is. It's a promise, right? Or let's get more real. Brad, I'm going to buy you a brand new car. Because nobody cares about the great thing. I'm going to buy you a brand new car and it's going to be whatever you think is the greatest car. Okay? That's a promise. The covenant is, Brad, I'm going to buy you a brand new car. It can be any car you want. But your end of the bargain is that you come every Thursday to study the Bible here for the next two years. And I'll give you the car now And you come every Thursday and study. But if you don't come, then I'm going to take the car away. Okay? Because that's the covenant. And we're going to see that. In fact, we're going to see it in great detail of the covenant of God. So, Abraham has both a promise, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. But he also has a covenant that's sealed by what? Circumcision. Right? So, that's an Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is a couple of different things. It's you're my nation, and you're going to get the land of fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, that they're going to get the promised land. And and it's going to come, though, in covenant form uh, through Moses, the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomic Law. And what's that law say? If you do what you're supposed to do, you get to stay in the land, and you're going to prosper. If you don't, you don't. What is one of the problems for the Israelites? They don't, but God doesn't take the land away from them. He warns them. That's what the prophets are doing. You know, we're going through all these prophets during this time. And they're saying, no, really. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, he's going to do these bad things to you. Remember the study of Jeremiah? We went through what? Five months of telling them they got to do the right thing and they didn't listen And finally, he takes the land away from them. See, we often think of the term I've used is zap. If I sin and don't get zapped, I got away with it, right? Yet the history of these studies in the Old Testament are that God just chooses not to show grace and to not punish him. And then he warns them and warns them and warns them, warns, 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 and then one day it happens. And they're all like, I can't believe this happened. Yeah, right. You've only heard about it for 300 years. So that's going to be, a, a, you know, the name of the, the subtitle of the study is David to Destruction. That's literally, we're going from the death of David to the destruction of both these kingdoms. So, so it's upbeat. Yeah, wait for that surprise ending. <laughs> the ending's just awesome. I mean... Just wonderful. Okay. So we go through that, and that's a period of time. So we're looking at that period of time post David. So we've got Solomon. We've got the splitting of the kings. We got Elijah. We got Elisha. We got Jezebel. We got some great characters in this study. Some of the most powerful characters, or as they're developed, characters in all of the Old Testament are in this study. And in the Bible, when they refer to all these people, that's what we're going to be learning about so we know about these people. Okay? One last thing, and then we're going to start forming groups. And I've said this before, and it's really critical for this study. The Bible is about what? Yeah, I'll get to that. (laughs) Uh, We're going to get to that next week. The Bible is about what? God. The Bible is about who? No, really. The Bible is about who? So let's quit making it about us, okay? It's about God. Several things we have to realize we are not God first. We are not an Israelite, okay? We're not a king or a ruler of Israel or Judah, okay? We are not a Jew or an Israelite, depending on which kingdom you're in. Now, that doesn't mean we can't learn a, a tremendous amount about God and about humans and how God interacts with humans. But the mistake we often make in making this kind of study is we somehow say, well, if God does that to that person, would he do that with us? Well, wait a minute. We're not a king. We're not in that context, okay? So we always got to come into these studies going, okay, let's make it about God. Let's make it about the Israelites, and let's see what we can learn about God and learn about how he interacts with his people. But let's not put ourselves into these situations. I hear people all the time say, well, you know, in David, I'm, you know, you're not David. You're not David. Now, that doesn't mean we can't learn from it. In fact, it's critical we learn from it or we're not going to understand the New Testament, which is very much about us. And it isn't that we're except, but we're just not. The nation of Israel doesn't exist. The nation of Israel in the Middle East is not the nation of Israel, as we're going to see in the end of this study. The United States is not the nation of Israel. No, the nation of Israel doesn't exist. So we just have to kind of come at this study going, we're going to make this about God, learn what we can from God and see how he interacts with people, but we're not going to sit there and go every week, okay, now what am I supposed to do because of this? Okay, well, you're not pick a king, okay? And we'll, we'll, we'll go through this, but it becomes very much a part. that Again, that doesn't mean we don't have application. There aren't things to learn. There are kinds of things to learn. We just need to let it be about God. Again, 41 kings we're going to cover, okay? Solomon is is good, bad, literally, both. The northern kings, 20 of them, none of them are good. Southern king kingdom, okay? One is good, one is pretty good. Six are okay, and all the rest are bad. So literally, out of 41 kings, one is really good. One is pretty good. I don't know what to do with Solomon. He's both at the same time. Six are good. And what does that leave us? 34 are bad. Or 32 are bad. So, yeah, that's what we're going to go through. Okay? All right. Always the most exciting part of the first night, better known as discussion group formation.